All right, let the rejoicing begin. You have found the Sons of History podcast, and if you haven't found it, then that means that you had already found it, and you're just piping in again for another episode of the Sons of History podcast. I'm Dustin Bass. And I'm Alan Joaquin. And and he seems <laughs> entirely enthused about what's happening in life. Um, we're very excited to have you along for your commute or your dip in the tub with the lovely sounds of your two favorite artists, Alan. Michael Bolton and Kenny G. That's right. Simultaneously playing. Um... Uh, I think it would probably be best to have Kenny G playing in the background because he's just saxophone and the lovely voice of Michael Bolton. Uh, man, man, oh man, oh man, when a man loves a woman. Uh, who could do it better? Who could do it better? Maybe Chubby Checker? Maybe. Who knows? All right, ladies and gentlemen, we are going to get started with this episode and as we always do, we start off with our book recommendations. Alan, you want to take the lead on that? Yeah, I'll take the lead. Um, Timing each other. Um, mine's, gonna, mine's going to be a little bit of a twist, and here's why. Um, in the fiction department, there's going to be a two-part um, recommendation. Uh, for the younger crowd, I'm going to suggest a book called Mythology by Edith Hamilton. Now, this is a good starter book. Uh, it's kind of a comprehensive book on mythology, mostly Greek, Greek and Roman. And it does touch up a little bit on some of the Norse, but it's mostly Greek and Roman. Now, for those people who want a little bit more in-depth, uh, a little bit more advanced, well, uh, Robert Graves wrote a, a two-volume edition at, just called The Greek Myths. And I know you can find it in a single volume, but it's, it is difficult to find, but it is available out there. But it describes much of what Edith Hamilton discusses, but again, it's a little bit more in-depth. For instance, when it talks about, say, the Trojan War, um, he goes into the prolonged 10-year period, uh, as well as some of the events that took place after the, the death of Hector and the death of Achilles, and goes into all the way up to uh, Odysseus's journeys and uh, when he got home. So that's going to be my fiction recommendation. Uh, in terms of the in, in terms of the nonfiction, uh, there is a four-volume work by Sir Winston Churchill called "The History of the English-Speaking People." Mm-hmm. It, um, it it began discussing like the Roman settlements, uh, Roman invasion of uh, what became Britain, and uh, it, it goes all the way up until around the, uh, around, uh, the year 1900, so you know, everything in between. So if you want to learn about, um, the, it does discuss the Revolutionary War, it does discuss even some of the wars, Scottish wars of independence, like Sir William Wallace and Robert the Bruce. And uh, it does talk about the Industrial Revolution of Britain. So uh, it's a good, uh, good comprehensive story for people who want to know the history of Britain. The Great Man. Very well. All right. 
Sounds good. Um, all right. Well, here are my two recommendations. Baseball season is right around the corner. Preseason has already started. Um, so I figured for a this nonfiction selection, it's a baseball book. And it's one I, I read, I think, last year or the year before last year. Uh, it's called 56, Joe DiMaggio and the Last Magic Number in Sports. Uh, this is about Joe DiMaggio's streak of 56 hits, um, 56 games, actually, 56 games with a hit um, in a row. Uh, and it takes you through game by game and how just the anticipation continue to build but also, uh, the author, Costia Kennedy, does a very good job of pulling in the what was going on in the world. This happened in 1941, obviously at the height of um, World War II. The uh, height of World War II, well, whatever. It's, it's during World War II, uh, all this going on. Um, and it's right before, obviously, that we're attacked um, at Pearl Harbor. But all these things are going on, the Nazi invasion um, of several countries. So the war has uh, been going on for a little while, and this streak of 56 games in a row with a hit sort of helps the country along um, sort of take their mind off of things, um, at least for a little while. Uh, and I think that's one of the things that we've discussed in regard to sports, um, is it's that moment where you can sort of just take sort of a step back and relax and have your mind on on other things, and that's that's the that's the huge thing about about sports. So baseball is my favorite sport. I'm looking forward to this season. Um, and readers, if you really want an interesting book, um, because we all know, well, any sports fan really knows about uh, Joe DiMaggio having 56. Um, games in a row with a hit, uh, but how he did it and just game by game, it's actually a very intriguing book and it had me it had me glued to the book um, throughout till I finished it. So very good book. Um, my fiction piece is one of my most uh, it's it's one of my favorite fiction piece books. Uh, it's called Angels and Demons. Have you read that? Uh, Alan? No, is that uh, by the same people that gave us the Da Vinci Code? That it is. That it is. So have you read the Da Vinci Code? I have not read the Da Vinci Code. Okay. Well, uh, I, do have, I do have the book, though. Okay. Um, Angels and Demons is the prequel to the Da Vinci Code. And to me, I think the book is better than the Da Vinci Code, although the Da Vinci Code got all the, the brouhaha. Um, this is a real. Did, did you say it's a it's a prequel to the Da Vinci Code? Correct. Okay. Now, but Angels and Demons. Um, that came. It came there, out. Huh? Wasn't Wasn't there a movie with the guy who played Ben Kenobi, a younger Ben Kenobi, Ewan McGregor? Yes. Is that the, is that yeah, the that's, same movie? Yeah, that's the that's the movie. Okay. All right. Um, thank you for that. Uh, so <laughs> the, the movies, the movies do not do the books justice one bit. Uh, the Da Vinci Code movie was trash. Um, the book is really good. Angels and Demons. The movie was better than the Da Vinci Code movie, but still not near 
not nearly as good as as the book. So, uh, readers, if or readers, listeners, if you're readers, go check out Angels and Demons um, and give that one a read. It's really it's a really fun um, really fun book, and it's by Dan Brown. So, anyways, um, moving on, we are going to be talking about this something that you wanted to discuss, and you put it as a U.S. Brexit. Go ahead and give us your thoughts on what you're talking about. Well, we have been watching in the news how uh, Great Britain voted on exiting the European Union, which I think is a good idea for Great Britain, uh, bad for Europe, because Great Britain is such a strong nation. But, um, you know, the people have had enough uh, at least that's what the majority voters stated, that they, they don't like being dragged down by a weaker Europe. Uh, they don't like the immigration policies of the weaker Europe. Um, but the, the pound is in a much stronger position than the euro. So it's in their best interest to exit, and hence the name Brexit, Britain exits. Now, there has been discussion about you know, secession here in the United States. What if uh, states want to leave the United States and, and what would happen? Now, we've had this experiment in 1861 where starting with, uh, I believe it was South Carolina or Mississippi. South Carolina, uh, they, yeah. They, they exited and then we had, we had about seven nations um, that uh, decided that they'd had enough being part of the United States. Uh, main issue being slavery, but there, there were other issues involved. There was a cultural difference between the North and the South. Uh, but, but you had uh, what South Carolina, Georgia, Florida, Mississippi, Alabama, Louisiana, and Texas decided to secede from the Union, and then four more afterwards. Uh, Virginia, North Carolina, uh, Tennessee, and Arkansas. And this is uh, how the Civil War got started. Now, um, today we have kind of a cold Civil War here in the United States. And much of this is because of, in my opinion, the strength and the power of the federal government and the presidency. I think the uh, federal government and uh, the executive branch of the presidency has become far, far too strict, or, or stronger rather, I should say, too powerful, too, um, too much of a hegemony over the rest of the states, far more than what the, uh, at least the founding fathers that supported uh, Jefferson and Madison, far more than they wanted. Um, I do know, yes, Hamilton and Adams believed very much in a strong um, central government, which is why they formed the Federalists. But, uh, you know, Jefferson and Madison and Monroe and, and their followers felt that it was important that states had a form of, uh, of autonomy. Um, because not everybody, you know, in the southern states felt the same way as, say, the northern states. Well, right now we're kind of going through something very similar where the executive branch has just, it's just gotten too strong. Mm-hmm. And... Whenever we have a presidency, the other side always says, we want to take the White House back. We want to take back our country. And people are just saying that all the time, no matter who is the president. 
Right. We want to take back our country. And anytime that somebody in Congress feels strong enough about something, they want to make it a federal law. They want to make the whole country follow suit, which really was not what was intended. Let me give you an example, corporal punishment. Uh, some congressmen and women in, in some of the northeastern states, Maryland or uh, Massachusetts, have come up with ideas such as let's federalize corporal punishment. You, you are not allowed to um, give corporal punishment in the schools. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, state of Texas, and I, I don't know if the state of Texas has banned it, but, but you know, when I went to school, uh, there were, you know, there was corporal punishment. We got spanked with a uh, paddle. Yeah. But states... Some states just don't want to be told what to do by, by, the, uh, by Congress. You know, that's why it's important that we have autonomy with the different states. It's why it's important that we let the states decide certain matters. But that just has not been the case. And in response, we've had some states, California, Texas, and Vermont, who all three of them happened to at one point have been independent republics. Those states many times lead the way and we want to secede, we want to secede. Hawaii also has done the same thing, but Hawaii is more for different reasons. Uh, the, the, the native Hawaiians, um, many of them kind of resent the fact that uh, they were annexed by the United States, but we'll kind of leave them out of this discussion for right now. Let's talk about people who, who are Native American. when I say Native Americans, not like Indians, I'm talking about uh, people who grew up believing that they were Americans, mm-hmm. Americans first. Um, but unfortunately, because of who the president is, when we have a, let's say, a liberal president, then Texans many times will say, oh, we, we need to secede. And even former Governor Rick Perry suggested that that, that was an option. Well, right now, with Trump being president, uh, you have people, let's say, in Vermont, and in California now, suggesting we want to secede. There are just too many irreconcilable differences between California, Vermont, and the rest of the United States. Now, there are pros and cons, but well, what are your thoughts on that, Justin? Well, my thoughts on it is that I understand the complaint. Um, I remember as, I think it was... I think I may have been in college or shortly after after college into my career. Um, I thought I'm like, well, we we can always just secede. We can always just get out of the union. Uh, we can just be our own country. Uh, God knows that we're you know strong enough economically, and I think uh, I think California sees themselves in in the same way. Uh, they're actually they have a better economy um, than Texas does. Now, maybe their their debt ratio is, is not as good, but as far as the amount of money that comes in, they, they make a lot more money than we do. Um, but I th- the more that I, I looked at it over time, um, I just thought that that was one, it was uh, not a good idea. And I think it's a real dangerous thing to 
sort of go back and forth. Yeah, there are a lot of people who don't like this president, uh, President Trump. There were also a lot of people who didn't like Barack Obama. There are also a lot of people who didn't like George Bush or Bill Clinton or the first George Bush or Ronald Reagan or Jimmy Carter or, you know, there are, there's always a lot of people in the U.S. and it's, you know, state-centric that do not like the president or do not like uh, where, you know, Congress wants to lead the country or um, who is running the country in Congress. Is it uh, is it the Republicans or is it the Democrats? So you're always going to have sort of a 50-50 split on the people who are going to say the phrase, we need to take our country back. Uh, because their view um, their view of where the country should go is different than you know my view uh, of where the country should go. And my view is very different than where uh, how a lot of other people view it. And I think it's very... I think it's very counterproductive and it's really self-defeating. And not just self-defeating, but country defeating if you if you throw your uh, if you just continue to complain and say we've got to get out of this country uh, due to you know every every four years you have somebody in in the presidency that you don't like but then four years later you're you know all right we finally got somebody so it's it's the ebb and flow that sort of keeps this country sort of sort of in the middle if you will um, we will go far, you know, to the left for a little while and then we'll bring somebody in because the country's like, okay, this is, you know, even from people from the, you know, the liberal side will be like, okay, we got to make a change. Let's bring in, you know, somebody who's, you know, more conservative. And then you start, you know, doing things, you know, from the conservative perspective that people are like, okay, this isn't working out. Let's bring in, you know, a Democrat. And they, so you sort of, you know, try to ebb and flow and even things out. Uh, to where you're not going so extreme, and ultimately, the the far right and the far left people, even them, you know, sort of level themselves out because they they pull they you know they push and pull against each other so much, and then you have you know a, a majority of the Americans who are sort of center left, center right. I just think it's not it's not a good idea to me. Um, to say, okay, because of what is happening right now, um, or because of what's happened the last four years or eight years, we got to get out of here. We, we, we've got to go somewhere else or we've got to become our own country. I think it's uh, overkill is the way I would put it. Well, you know, there are definite advantages and disadvantages for such an occurrence. Uh, disadvantage, obviously, would be, you know, you're talking about breaking up of the country, which I think a majority of people, even those who are disgruntled about D.C., don't want to see. Um, it's, um, it, is, it is a problem, and countries that have um, kind of shown where areas have seceded, give an example, uh, Russia or Yugoslavia, um, that has created a weakness of the government or a weakness of the country. And it will also create bitterness between those who left and those who stayed behind who wanted to keep the union together. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and we had, we had the same thing here in the United States uh, in 1861. There was, there was hatred and bitterness. And I would say that the bitterness didn't end 
until maybe the Spanish-American War when Southerners and Northerners and even Westerners fought together as one country. And, and we're quite successful at that, too. Spain right now is kind of going through it. Um, England, Britain is kind of going through it with, uh, with Scotland. The, the Scottish people are sitting in... Um, Wanting now, now they had they just had a uh, recent uh, I, I guess you call it a plebiscite. If that's the correct way to say it, but uh, Scotland tried it, and uh, the majority of the people rejected independence. Right. Um, by a small margin, have, by a pretty small margin. Hmm? I said by a pretty small margin. I think a lot of people were by surprised at how margin. small the margin was. Yeah. Uh, Quebec uh, believed that you know the, the French speaking people of Quebec uh, they would love to have their own little country and you know even back to uh, to like Spain Spain I think is having some issues with with the Basques and with the Catalonians mm-hmm. and you know if if those if those portions if those provinces do separate it will lead to a weakened country now the positives of something like that are that the elections that will take place in those little nations won't be so divisive in terms of the people who live within these new states. Let me give you an example. Um, California, which used to be a majority uh, Republican state, is now uh, very much a majority left, leftist state, left-wing state, uh, Democrat state. Um, they're coming up with ideas that the majority of Americans would not even go for. So if California were to separate or if California were to divide itself up into uh, four different states, then at least you would have certain areas of, let's say, Northern California can stay with the United States while some of the more coastal regions, the city regions, um, they can have more of the liberal left-wing type of government that they have always dreamt of. Uh, Texas, if Texas... um, were to become an independent state, I'm quite or an independent republic. I'm quite sure that there will be some states, like maybe Oklahoma, that would uh, join them. But at least you would have within those within the new republic, you would have more peace in terms of the people. Um, you, you wouldn't have a, kind of an anger where the people would say, oh, you know, the president, he's not my president, like you're seeing right now with, uh, you know, whether it's a Donald Trump or, or a, a Barack Obama or a George Bush. Well, I got to I gotta ask you a question, though. With that, and I think the whole... I think the whole world, anybody who's paying attention to what's going on on television or online will agree that there's never been a more polarizing president than President Trump. Um, we've never experienced the just the the onslaught of this ain't my president or you know go Trump anything you say goes it's perfect it's you know it's the it's the word of God. You know there's such a division between the two. Um, I think this situation that we find ourselves in that we it w- that may come to an end in 2020 or it may continue to 2024 um i think we would <laughs> i think we would err greatly if we decided okay because this president is in office and the way he is 
And there are so many people that, you know, talk bad about him so much more so than any of his predecessors ever received. Um, and there have been a lot of presidents who have, who have gotten a lot of bad publicity. Um, but this president, it's, it's, off, it's off the scales. Um, I think it would be because President Trump is in office and he may be in office for another six years, we got to dismantle the union. I think that, like I said, I think it's overkill. And I think just because you bring it down to size, like you scale it down to, okay, uh, state by state or region by region becomes countries, you're still going to get very divisive uh, outcomes. I mean, just take, for instance, the, the Beto Cruz campaigns um, or any campaign, really. But the Beto Cruz here in Texas, how divided, you know, the U.S. or the, US, the state was on that outcome. That one was a lot closer vote than I think a lot of people anticipated. I think they thought that Cruz just had a handle on, you know, the seat and in the Senate, and it would be it would be fine. Uh, but no, there's a lot of differing viewpoints. Now you can blame that on well because we've got a lot of transplants here from other states, uh, from liberal states, the states that are not doing as well economically, or there's not as much freedom economically um, as there is in Texas. You can blame it on on whatever it is. Um, but there is still. There's always going to be that division there. And I think, uh, I, I don't want to break you off, but I just want to throw that in there. I just think blaming it on Trump is, it, it's, it just doesn't make sense to me because he can only be in president four years at a, at a time and for the for the most eight years altogether. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, I'll, I'll say this about the election between Cruz and, and Beto O'Rourke. One of the things I did notice is, is that um, you know, Cruz, I think a lot of that was because of Cruz. Cruz was a very controversial senator. And if you if you look, um, Governor Abbott also ran for his four-year term. And I don't think the election was as close. In fact, I think I want to say that, uh, that um, Governor uh, Abbott won by a much, much larger, maybe by at least 10, 10 points. Are you talking about for the governorship? Yes. Yeah, yeah, he, he won pretty handedly. Right, and, um, and most of the other, I think, uh, well, uh, it is my understanding that every state state office, uh, a Republican won, and they, and they have won since 94. Uh, since the 94 election, you know, what I mean by that is, you know, like the lieutenant governor, the secretary of state, um, all the leading positions uh, in the state of Texas have been held by a Republican uh, since, uh, you know, for the last, uh, what, 24 years now? Yeah, but you look at the, the major cities, Houston, Dallas, San Antonio, and Austin, I mean, look how blue those, those cities are. They're pretty well, blue. They've always been, they've, they've, well, I, okay, now I'll say that the cities themselves have always been blue. What, what has changed is Harris County. Now, Harris County... Um, I, I, if I remember correctly, in uh, I think it, when was it in '94? I think it was in '94 when um, when the when the country basically just turned red. So did Harris County itself, and um, I 
think it was not just in 94, but it was the following elections after that where all the Harris County judges and all the positions, with the exception of the mayor, well, the mayor is a, is a part of the city, but like the Harris County Commissioner's Court, um, the district attorney, uh, they, they all, all the judges that were elected were Republican. Mm-hmm. That has now flipped. Uh, Harris County is now lock, stock, and barrel blue. Right. Um, now, the city had always been blue, but, but now we're talking about the county. And that that is significant. But in terms of Texas, Texas is still, Texas is still a red state. Uh, but how long will it be? I, I couldn't tell you because, you know, uh, most Hispanics in, in Texas are going to be far more conservative than, say, the Hispanics that you'll find in California. Uh, Texas kind of has an attitude, more, more of a conservative attitude. You know, we love our guns. We love our God. Um, we love our families. Uh, not to say that Californians don't love their family, but they certainly don't love their guns nor their God. So, yeah, um, they're, they're different states. They are California and Texas are different states, and I think it's very important that we have more of an autonomy in each state so that we can prevent a Brexit here in the United States. If um, you know, the, the federal government was meant to do only a few things, but many of these laws that they're passing, you know, I think that there was a law right now that if you abuse an animal, that it, it's now considered a, a federal felony. Yeah. Well, it's there's already state laws against animal abuse. Yeah, I, I agree that the federal government has become too intrusive into the state powers. Um, and that's, no, that's not, uh, it's pretty much throughout all of all of the written documents from the founding fathers that this is not how it's supposed to be. Uh, you can read throughout the Federalist Papers. That's not what Hamilton and Jay and, and Madison were advocating. They weren't, they were advocating for a centralized government, They're, you know, a Federalist program, but they weren't advocating for, they, and in fact, they continue to reiterate, hey, look, the states will have, you know, sovereignty. They will have power to make the decisions that they need to make to take care of their people. Um, and yeah, we have completely, you know what, I will say it, we have completely left that um, from just the, the government itself as far as uh, the federal government itself and then the these agencies that have been created by the federal government to intrude in just about every aspect of life for the American people, state to state. Um, yeah, it's it's become... It's become a situation where, okay, what what do we have to do to get our rights back that as Americans and as, as it was founded, we're supposed to have? And right now, I mean, I, I agree that seceding, the threat of secession should always be on the table. That should always that should always be on the table as, if the government is getting way too powerful and taking way too much from the American people, then there needs to be the the, the definite threat that hey, um, we are we're going to go somewhere else. I mean, you take take for instance if you if you had 
Texas and California leave the union. That is about $3 trillion GDP a year. Um, that's, that's incredibly devastating. And you know that uh, there are other states in the U.S. That, that would follow suit. Like, well, if Texas is leaving, so are we. Or if California is leaving, then so are we. You know, so there has to be that threat against the government, uh, the federal government. Like, if you don't take your hands off, then we're going to do something. In that same argument, there are some states like California that seem to appreciate more government control, more federal government control. They, it seems like there are some states like New York as well. New York is 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 way worse than than California in this regard, as far as um, controlling the citizens of that state, like almost on like every nitpicking on almost everything that you do. Um, well, and, and I would say New York City. Definitely, because um, I do recall now, as we're discussing this, that the people of upstate New York would like to separate from New York City, because the people of upstate New York are going to be more conservative-leaning than you would find in New York City. Right. Now, they're not going to, they won't be as conservative as, say, uh, people from Texas, Louisiana, you know, the southern states. Yeah. No, I, I agree. There's, a, there's actually a, a Canadian um, group. It's called the Fraser Institute, uh, FraserInstitute.org. And they actually put together economic freedom maps uh, on countries. And then they also have done uh, economic freedom map on the U.S. state by state. And New York is number 50. And it's got a very low rating because of just the things that they do. Um, that are highly restrictive to business and highly restrictive to individuals, and that's and that's the thing is that's one of the more powerful states in the U.S. Um, that 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 want more government control. Um, and if I may read from Federalist Paper Number Three, because uh, we keep mentioning. California, Texas, and now New York, the, the three largest as far as population states in the U.S., says some of the larger states, a small number of years hence, this is Alexander Hamilton, uh, some of the larger states will be in themselves populous, rich, and powerful. In all those circumstances calculated to inspire ambition and nourish ideas of separation and independence. Now, I apologize, that's not Federalist Paper number three. It's actually The Continentalist, um, which was written by Alexander Hamilton. So, yeah, when we focus a lot of our attention on the big states, which we should, um, but it's not not strictly about them. And, and I do want to point out, because you brought up the Brexit uh, situation. Being part of the European Union... The primary difference between the European Union and the United States of America, which is an obvious difference, is language. It's culture. It's it. They're not states. They're not. Uh, they're not states that are all part of one country. These are various countries that have been around for, you know, what Britain's been around for over a thousand years, I believe, um, and or, or longer. 
1500, somewhere in there, right? Because Julius Caesar was the one who had, who um, invaded uh, Britain, or I don't think it was called Britain at the time. What was it called? Well, it, well, it might have been Britannia. Um, it, it didn't really have an official name because there was no, there was no, uh, you know, federal government. There was no uh, central government. It was tribal. But um, the, the the government that we have of Britain today, its roots go back to. 1066, when William the Conqueror uh, invaded and uh, replaced the uh, the Anglo-Saxon uh, government. Okay, so I was so I was right. And You're off by a thousand years, though. <laughs> Actually, eleven hundred years. Do what? You were off by about eleven hundred years. No, it wasn't. I said they they they've been around for what a thousand years. Well, yeah, yeah, no, yes, yes, on that part. And then I said, but, I mean, if we're going to go back, you know, they ha they did have people over there uh, during Julius Caesar's day. Um, yes, they, when, when they, he... Britain, Britain became part of Rome, uh, part of the Roman Empire until 410, when the last of um, the organized British uh, troops left, uh, because, uh, you know, Rome was being threatened, uh, and then it eventually got sacked by... Uh, the uh, Visigoths. Okay, so you like to say that I am wrong once. I like to say that I was right twice. So, anyways. <laughs> so, but my point here. Let me get. Let me get to the my get to my point because we just went into a little uh, Britain history. Is there is the connection in the United States based on language, based on our culture? We are tied together by our by our past. Europe, the European Union is tied together out of a necessity to keep mass war from taking place. That was the idea behind that. Um, and so that is one of those things where it's like, okay, that's, that's not why Britain wants to be in there. Britain doesn't want to be in there because now it's, it's a detriment to them. The U.S., was it was brought together from war from the American Revolution and understood that a breaking apart of it would possibly lead to war, which is actually very interesting that that the the Federalists actually point this out a number of times, especially Alexander Hamilton. He points toward the possibility of a civil war taking place. If America were to dismantle and break apart, and states were to secede, so uh, I do want to mention this one. Now, this is from Federalist Paper Number Seven, uh, and this is also Hamilton. He said, "America, if not connected at all, or only by the feeble tie of a simple league, offensive and defensive, would, by the operation of such opposite and jarring alliances, be gradually entangled in all the pernicious labyrinths." of European politics and wars, and by the destructive contentions of the parts into which she was divided, would be likely to become a prey to the artifices and machinations of powers equally the enemies of them all. So, the Founding Fathers had history on their side, had, had watched what was going on in Europe, 
and seeing all of all of the chaos over there and and country against country they also utilized um, the the historical significance of what happened even in quote unquote countries that were supposed to be all together like Greece you know but they were they were all they were all you know separate and they didn't like each other and then you know had had Rome Rome fell apart um, and so they're pointing to this, which is why throughout our history, at least in that, that early going, like by all means, we must retain the union. We must save the union. That's what Abraham Lincoln continued to say. Like, it doesn't matter what we got to do. The, the primary aspect, the primary goal of the Civil War and before the Civil War was we've got to keep this union together. And Abraham Lincoln said it a number of times, I'll, I'll do whatever it takes to preserve the union, and yeah, is, and, and if that and if I that is, was, go ahead. There was a quote. That, well, there was a quote where, um, after the Battle of Gettysburg, um, Meade, who was General Meade, who was the victor at Gettysburg, did not adequately chase and destroy Lee's army that was uh, fleeing back to the south, and uh, Lincoln. Lincoln got upset with him. Why didn't you? Um, why didn't you go after them? Why didn't you destroy the army and try to capture them? And Meade was like, "Well, look, <clears throat> I got them off our land, out of our territory, out of our country." And Lincoln was like, "The South is our country." Mm-hmm. You're thinking he was, you know, Meade was sitting thinking we got them out of the North. They went back to their country. Yeah. Whereas Lincoln was thinking, no. South is our country too. You should have went after them. You should have captured them. Right. But he kind of understood at the same time that the Union Army went through hell in that three-day battle, um, and he didn't press the issue. Let's just hope that uh, that things can settle down a bit. That um, the federal government will ease up on some of its policies mm-hmm. and uh, allow states to have a little bit more autonomy. If, if they do see the possibility that California wants to get out, maybe they'll they'll start to rethink how strong the federal government in D.C. should be. Yeah. Maybe we should kind of appreciate the Ninth and Tenth Amendments. Yeah, no, definitely. And heed by them, yeah. Right. I, I completely agree. I mean, we've got to. The federal government has got to get out of the, out of the, the inner workings of what's going on in in the states in the local local governments, um, and let let states run themselves as they should, as long as you know human rights are, are still you know protected. Uh, we still have the Constitution. The Constitution. I mean, and that's another thing that you would have to sacrifice. You would have to sacrifice the United States Constitution. Now, I would assume that if any states left, that they would just go ahead and, you know, copy and paste <laughs> the U.S. Constitution because it's such a beautiful thing. Um, and it's and it's so well. Uh, something that James Madison pointed out in Federalist Paper 10, which I thought was pretty funny. I highlighted it in, 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 the, in the, one of the books that I have uh, with the, the papers. It says... Very short and sweet. Enlightened statesmen will not always be at the helm. And so, 
I think a lot of people view President Trump as not an enlightened statesman, just as a lot of people viewed um, Barack Obama and George Bush and, 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 and pretty much every president. But I think, um, I think as of right now, this president that we have in office um, is viewed by a lot of people as such, uh, according to Madison's statement. Um, and that's one of the things that you have, you, you vote someone in office and if the major, well, if the majority of states do not, uh, well, I can't even say majority of states. Um, now I'm leaning into the electoral college question. Um, but if they don't like who is in office, he's just voted out. And if you don't like, um, where the, the country's going, you just, vote in who you want according to your representative and your senator. Um, yep, you change, uh, change the Congress to, uh, to limit the power of that president. Yeah. And one of the things, because like I had mentioned earlier, like if California were to leave, you know that some of the other states would leave too uh, and join them, um, just as if it was Texas. And Hamilton points this out in Federalist Paper 8. He says... If we should be disunited and the integral parts should either remain separated or, which is most probable, should be thrown together in two or three confederacies, we should be, in a short course of time, in the predicament of the continental powers of Europe. Our liberty, our <coughs> Lord help me, our liberties would be a prey to the means of defending ourselves against the ambition and jealousy of each other. And that's the danger. And that's something we've already experienced before. Yeah. Well, let's uh, let's pray that we we never have a division of this country. <clears throat> and uh, speaking of prayer, do we have a uh, scripture uh, for us today? Indeed, we do, my uh, my good sir. We do. I know you want to um, hold on because I, I did want to have a final word from our from our boys uh, from the Federalist Papers. And this is from Federalist Paper number one. And this is just a final note to the listeners. Uh, and I think if you if if you if you read throughout the documents on the founding fathers and how much thought and how smart they were, how brilliant they were, and then how much thought they put into everything that they wrote and put into law, um, this this statement will ring true. Hamilton says, I am convinced that this is the safest course for your liberty, your dignity, and your happiness. And I agree. I agree. The way that, it's, the way that it has been put together um, is, is the best for all around. So our scripture is um, Matthew 12, 25. And it says, but Jesus knew their thoughts. And said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation. And every city or house divided against itself will not stand. And that's pretty interesting because we just went from federal government down to the state level. And, you know, we mentioned like there's still division regardless of how small you get it. Um, and that's what Jesus is saying. He's like, from the kingdom all the way down to the city 
all the way down to just the house, uh, just the family. If it's divided against itself, it won't stand. And that's what will happen to the U.S. Um, it will it will come to naught, and eventually, if one leaves, five leave, ten leave, twenty leave, eventually you're just going to have, uh, like Hamilton said, two or three confederacies, and they're eventually going to, you know, there's going to be faction at a much higher level, which is something that Madison always warned against. It's going to be a faction at a higher level, uh, like we saw in 61 to 64. Hopefully not. I mean, I know that's very um, gloom gloom and doom, but um, that, that's that's the scary part of it. All right. Well, anything else you want to add before we go? Man, my seat's really loud. I'm sure people can hear that. Like this? Uh, I, heard, I heard something. <laughs> it's the seat. It's the seat. Uh, Where can they find us, well, my friend? They can find us on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and Instagram. Oh, so they can't... As well they... as our website, uh-huh. com. Okay, so they, they can't find us on Pinterest, correct? I don't think they can find us on Pinterest unless they look really hard or create something. Uh huh. <laughs> I remember, like, like, how did you come up with Pinterest last time? How <laughs> oh, I got confused between Pinterest and, and uh, Instagram. Beautiful. They're all pictures. All right, listeners. Well, we hope that you enjoyed this episode. We will chat you up later. And just to give you a little tease, we've got something very special in the works for you. Um, in about, what, a month or two, right? Uh, God willing, yes. All right. All right, everyone. We'll talk to you later. Have a great night. More day. Bye-bye.